In 2002, I hosted my one and only ever Oscars viewing party. I invited a bunch of friends and colleagues over to my place. We were listening to some Marvin Gaye. It was still freezing cold in Chicago, as it always is in March. But we were so excited because there were so many African-American nominees that year, an unprecedented possibility of amazing things happening that night. It really felt important to be surrounded by a larger group of people. And I have to say that there are people who came to this Oscars viewing party who had never been to Oscars viewing parties before. We were just really poised to celebrate something special that year. As we were putting out our chips and salsa and our Jay's potato chips and onion dip, miles away in Los Angeles, the party planning was at a completely different level. So I want to talk a little bit about the dress that you wore that night. This is a gown designed by Ellie Saab, a Lebanese designer. It's a gown that has its own Wikipedia page, (laughs) 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 which is amazing. Gorgeous, deep red mesh gown, some strategic floral embroidery on it. What was the process of choosing what you would wear? Yeah, the Oscars, you know, it's about glamour, you know, and it is about fashion. This, of course, is Halle Berry. She was nominated that year for her role in Monsters Ball. She recently donated the dress she wore that night to the Academy Museum. I was very clear at the time that I wanted to stay connected to who I was. You know, I wanted to wear something that was reflective of me and my sense of style, which is why we got a little a little sexy, a little big. We sort of managed to incorporate all the elements of who I think I am at the, and who I was at that time, that's for sure in that dress. And it was a little risky. You know, I remember trying it on for the first time and people around me saying, oh, I don't know if that's, if that's an Oscar dress. It's maybe it's a bit too sexy or maybe it's a bit too revealing. And then I thought, well, I remember what Cher wore one year and that (laughs) seemed to be fine. (laughs) So I realized it was just important that I feel comfortable and stay true to who I was. Several neighborhoods over, Sidney Poitier was getting ready. His daughter, Sidney Poitier-Hartsong, says that he got ready for all award shows in the same way. What is his routine when he got ready for an award show? I will tell you what it was exactly. My mother would wake him up because he would take a nap, particularly in the later years when he really needed (laughs) needed the energy. About 20 minutes before they would have to leave, he would take a shower if he hadn't showered already. And then he would run an Afro pick through his hair, just a little, you know, just make sure it's all uniform and he would brush his teeth and they would go. And that was it. That was it. And he would wow. wear the same tuxedo that he wore a million times before. He had an Armani tuxedo. And I'll tell you another really bizarre, interesting fact that I think points to his extraterrestrialness. He hadn't had a haircut. He's he's never he's never had a haircut. He stopped having a haircut and it was about 20 years it just w- wouldn't grow and also wouldn't fall off his head. It just stayed there and you never needed to cut it. It was the craziest, most bizarre thing in the world. Wow. Yeah. Effortless, effortless. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and at the Kodak Theater in Hollywood, Whoopi Goldberg was ready to host her fourth Oscar ceremony. Was it old hat for you at that moment? Did you feel as though you really had a handle on it? Was it still a challenge for you? Yeah, it was all those things. And I was so happy to be there. 
really happy to be there because there was magic in the air. You know, there was a lot of magic in the air. I'm Jacqueline Stewart. Welcome to the Academy Museum podcast. This is our first season and the Oscar goes to. In every episode, we'll revisit a specific Oscar ceremony. We kick it off with, this door tonight has been opened. We take a look at the Oscar ceremony in 2002. I am a University of Chicago film scholar, an archivist, host of Silent Sunday Nights on Turner Classic Movies. I've been a film fan all of my life. I started watching movies when I was a kid. Old, classic Hollywood films with my Aunt Constance. Oh, Harry, don't talk. I've got to talk. I've got to. Oh, please. Please, not now. You stop crying. I love the way that she would comment on what it was like for her, seeing movies like The Gay Divorcee or Mildred Pierce or Imitation of Life for the first time. Find her, Mr. Steve. We would talk about these movies during the commercial breaks. She really made me feel a sense of connection to people who made and watched these movies generations before I was alive. Find her. I will. You may be sure. It's about the movies for me, but it's also about the ways that movies bring people together, the kinds of conversations we can have about movies, and the really deep histories. There's always something new to uncover. In my role as Chief Artistic and Programming Officer at the Academy Museum, We pay careful attention to the ways that filmmakers have developed their crafts over the years. One of the things that I really appreciate about the work that we're doing at the Academy Museum is that we're looking at international film history. And we're paying really careful attention not only to the filmmakers and the films that are well-known, but also uncovering the histories that are less well-known, that have actually been excluded. And of course... Oscar ceremonies and Oscar statuettes are a really important part of our exhibitions. So we're starting off our podcast looking at 10 significant Oscar ceremonies because the Oscars give us snapshots of what was happening in the industry in a given year as an art form and as a business. And they highlight cultural movements and debates that shape and are shaped by cinema, demonstrating the tremendous impact of film. We're starting off with 2002 because that year was extremely important due to the number of Black nominees. Halle Berry was nominated for Best Actress for Monsters Ball. Both Denzel Washington and Will Smith were nominated for Best Actor. And Sidney Poitier was being recognized with a special honorary Oscar in recognition of his remarkable accomplishments as an artist and as a human being. Plus, Whoopi Goldberg was the host that evening. So it promised to be a really important night for looking at the possibilities for Black artists in Hollywood. This must be a moment, Halle, you've dreamed about ever since you were a girl in Ohio. You're an Oscar nominee on the red carpet. How does a fantasy compare to the reality? It's even more incredible than I could have ever imagined. Well, every legit Oscars party really begins by turning the TV on early and catching the red carpet. And of course, my guests were floored by Halle Berry's gown that night. But as she was walking the red carpet, she didn't think that she would win. I remember feeling excited, but if I'm honest, I also remember 
the overwhelming feeling that I knew I wouldn't win. And that's simply because back in those days, the Golden Globe felt like they were very much the precursor for the Oscar. If you didn't win the Golden Globe, you usually didn't win the Oscar. And I didn't win the Golden Globe that year. So I kind of believed I wouldn't win. So I was really just trying to enjoy the moment, enjoy the sense of accomplishment, have a great time, enjoy my family and just soak it all in because it's, it's, it's a huge night, you know, and I was just trying to soak it all up. Wow. But really deep down believing I, I probably would not win. The feeling was intense as people took their seats as Sydney Poitier's daughter, Sydney, remembers. It was really, really charged and exciting. I think because Denzel was nominated and Will was nominated and Holly was nominated, there was such a feeling of just poignancy to the evening. And then the ceremony began. Ladies and gentlemen, your Oscar-winning host for the 74th Annual Academy Awards, Ms. Whoopi Goldberg. Let's talk about your entrance. That is the year when you drop down from the ceiling. From the ceiling. Moulin Rouge style. <laughs> yes. <laughs> Fabulous yes. costume. Come and get me, boys! Come and get me, boys! How did you plan that? Well, I, I said, can I put a swing up there or something? To, does the ceiling? They said, we can do you better. We can drop you from the ceiling. I was like, oh, okay. Okay. So there I was, swinging and laughing and having a good time and knowing that it was joy and fun. And then, of course, you know, me trying to get to the stage and then looking at all these people and seeing people and, ooh, I'm going to give you a kiss. Wow. Oh, hey, hey, Nicole. You know? <laughs> you know, she's like, hmm. <laughs> but it's okay. It's okay. I had fun. I had fun. Yeah, yeah. When you uh, hosted, of course, you had your opening monologue. Good evening, darlings. I am the original sexy beast. <laughs> Welcome to the 74th Annual Academy Awards. What a night. And then you were also presenting all of the nominees for Best Picture. And some of your comments across the night really, you know, in a... In a <laughs> funny way, play up the fact that Hollywood continues to have a diversity problem. You talk about yes. Gosford Park has all of these servants, but none of them are black. <laughs> yes. Our second nomination picture this evening is Gosford Park, a film with 15 maids, butlers, cooks, and chauffeurs, and not one of them is black. Where are the black hobbits? <laughs> And of course, you don't remember me from Lord of the Rings, because even though it was a three and a half hour movie, part one of a trilogy, there just wasn't room for the Black Hobbit. <laughs> or as we were originally called, the Blobbits. This really was a, a, a bone of contention for me, because I feel like, how do you not have a Black Hobbit or an Asian Hobbit? They're not there. Was not enough room in the Shire for us? <laughs> I just, I think someone needs to make that movie. Hobbit goes to Harlem. 
(laughs) (laughs) Of the five Best Picture nominated movies, there was not a single Black actor featured. However, the acting category showcased a historic number of Black nominees in the leading roles categories. Back in 1973, at the 45th Academy Awards, there had been a record three Black performers nominated for leading roles, Paul Winfield and Cicely Tyson for Sounder, and Diana Ross for Lady Sings the Blues. But none of them won. In 2002, in addition to Halle Berry, Denzel Washington and Will Smith were both nominated for their leading roles in Training Day and Ali. But up to that point, no Black actor had won in that category since Sidney Poitier's win in 1964 for Lilies of the Field. Sidney Poitier Hartsong remembers how this weighed on her dad. He would occasionally sort of vent his frustrations about how um, long it was taking. I think when he won, he really thought that that door was now open and that many people would walk through behind him. And so it was like a, a bit of a lonely road for him because he really, really wanted others to come and join him there. So we were really excited to be there. We were all really nervous too, N- nervous that maybe none of them would win. Lady, ladies and gentlemen, Sidney Poitier. In the first half of the Academy Awards ceremony that evening, Sidney Poitier was given an honorary award for his lifetime of achievement. I arrived in Hollywood at the age of 22 in a time different than today's. A time in which the odds against my standing here tonight, 53 years later, would not have fallen in my favor. I remember how he shared his victory with so many people. He wanted everyone to recognize that he wasn't alone in making the career that he had. Were there not an untold number of courageous, unselfish choices made by a handful of visionary American filmmakers, directors, writers, and producers? He had these guiding angels along the way that was willing to take a risk because the times demanded it. And my dad is someone who really sees himself as part of a collective. You know, he really sees himself as, as, you know, he sees the interconnectedness of the universe and he would never try to sort of take full credit for the magic that was his career. Finally, to those audience members around the world who have placed their trust in my judgment as an actor and filmmaker, I thank each of you for your support through the years. Thank you. When we lost Sidney Poitier in January 2022, at the age of 94, one thing that was striking to me is that as people made tributes to him, they spoke about him in exactly the same way they did that night when he won his honorary award. His courage to stand up and force Hollywood to treat him equally with dignity and respect, it's allowed me to dream. The ripples just go on and on and continue to go on. For actors in my generation and actors to come. Thank you. Congratulations on your award. It's well-deserved. Thank you for all that you've done for us and continue to do. For blazing the trail. For all that you are. He always carried such incredible elegance and dignity and was always so conscious of his legacy. 
It didn't take a lot of extra work to honor him because he had always demanded being honored in that way throughout his career. Good evening, folks. It's my pleasure and privilege to announce the uh, best performance by an actress in a leading role. The nominees are... Toward the end of the evening, the moment that everyone was waiting for. And the Oscar goes to... Halle Berry in Monsters Bay. I remember very little about... I don't, I don't even know how I got to the stage. For me... I, I must have levitated because all of a sudden I was in my seat and then I was on the stage. My first memory is looking at Russell Crowe and him telling me, breathe, mate, breathe. <laughs> and I turned around and I saw the crowd and I realized I had an Oscar in my hand and I realized, oh my God, I won. I'm up here, you know? And because I had no speech, uh, and then I had to realize, I realized I have to start talking. I have to say something. And I just started talking. <laughs> I'm sorry. This moment is so much bigger than me. This moment is for Dorothy Dandridge, Lena Horne, Diane Carroll. It's for the women that stand beside me, Jada Pinkett, Angela Bassett, Vivica Fox, and it's for every nameless, faceless woman of color that now has a chance because this door tonight has been opened. I think one moment that always stands out to me is that, you know, there's that music that they start up <laughs> and and you say, no, 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 it, this took 74 years. <laughs> you have the presence of mind at that moment to say, this is the space for me to to really thank people properly. Yes. And it was around that point when my conscious mind started to take over and I started to realize where I was and what I was doing and and think of those people um, that were in that room that were supporting me that night, that helped me get to this, you know, get to that point. Thank you. Okay, wait a minute. I got to take this 74 years here. Okay, I got to take this time. I got to thank um, my, my, my lawyer, Neil Meyer, for making this deal. Oprah Winfrey for being the best role model any girl can have. Joel Silver, thank you. And thank you to Warren Beatty. Thank you so much for being my mentors and believing in me. Thank you, thank you, thank you. At my Oscars party, it was like the roof blew off of our apartment. Everyone went crazy. I had a number of my University of Chicago colleagues at the party, very esteemed scholars who were flipping out. And I have to say that not everyone at the party had even seen Monsters Ball. They were still so invested in Halle Berry winning this award. And it was amazing to see that Halle Berry recognized 
people who were watching the nameless, faceless women of color. She had us on her mind, even as we were hooping and hollering for her win. But years later, Hallie would say that winning the Best Actress Award was her greatest heartbreak. Like Sydney, she believed the door was open the night she won. But what actually happened for her and Black artists in Hollywood after that night? After Halle Berry became the first Black woman to receive the Best Actress Oscar, the night kept going. Denzel Washington won the Best Actor Award. It was presented by Julia Roberts. Oh, the Oscar goes to I Love My Life, Denzel Washington. And on the broadcast, we could see Sidney Poitier bending over, mouth open in joy as he mouthed, Whoa. I remember Denzel, he made a joke about uh, he's been chasing my dad for, you know, 40 years. 40 years I've been chasing Sydney. They finally give it to me. What they do? They give it to him the same night. I'll always be chasing you, Sydney. I'll always be following in your footsteps. Then he finally gets his moment and my dad gets an award on the same night. <laughs> it was a very, very funny joke. Whoopi Goldberg remembers the scene after these historic awards were bestowed. What was the vibe like at that moment when he won and he and Sydney have this moment of holding their Oscars yes, yes. up at each other, toasting each other? Well, it was like, this is as it should be. This is as it should be. The family's back together. You know, the family's all together and we have moved into the neighborhood. <laughs> we're in the neighborhood now. We've moved into all the slots. We've been and we're here, you know, and this is a new beginning, you know, and it was. So it was pretty remarkable. And I feel like, is that the night Hallie won as yes. well? Yes. Yes. And I just was, you know, I was kind of really happy about it. Sad and happy at the same time. Mm. You know, because ego-wise, well, ego-wise, I would have liked to have been the first. I would have liked to have broken that that ceiling, you know. But my brain said, well, it wasn't you. Get it together. Huh. Yeah. Get it together and celebrate who it was. And it was like, you're right. You're right. The wins that night were moments to celebrate, but they also reminded us of all the performers who had not been recognized. Award shows are always bittersweet. There's only one winner, and winning may not always be what it seems. You've been very open in your discussion of the ways in which receiving that Oscar did not have the impact on your career that you expected that it would. Yeah. And I, I would love to talk with you about not so much, you know, the disappointments, but I guess how this has shaped your sense of what an Oscar really means, what it should mean for an artist like yourself. Well, you know what? That's a good question. What should it mean? I know what it does mean, and it means that on that given year, my peers 
chose me above everyone else or chose you, whoever the winner is, above everyone else in that category and said that we collectively feel you had the best performance, the best effort this year. That's what it means. And that's a true honor to have your peers acknowledge your work that way and for them to collectively agree on you. Because it's hard for people to collectively agree on anything. (laughs) So when a group of people collectively agree that this is the best from our professional opinion, us who work within the industry, and we say it's you, that's probably the, it is the biggest honor that you can, I think, receive as an artist. And the Academy is uh, the gold standard. And that's what I know it does mean. And that's what I know for a fact it does do. Now, the next question is how it affects each person after they win the award actually depends on the choices you make after winning that award and the opportunities that Um, are there for you. And for me, when I won that award 20 years ago, the reality was there weren't enough scripts and stories written for women of color at that time to benefit now an Oscar winner. The work just wasn't there. The characters, it just wasn't there for me. And I realized that two or three weeks after I won the award, when the, I joke about it because I have no nothing else to do but joke about it, when the script truck didn't back up to my house and dump off all of these great roles for now the Oscar winner, right? The leading lady Oscar winner, there just were no scripts to support that. And I realized two or three weeks after that, that my battle to find work that supported my win was gonna be a formidable one. Right. And I would have to continue the same fight that I had to win that award. I would have to stay on that same path of trying to convince people that I could play certain roles that people thought I couldn't play based on my physical self, beauty, whatever people would think about what I could and couldn't do. And then I would also have to try to convince producers and writers and directors if there were roles that were written for a man or for a white woman to think about making them a black woman. Now, jump to now, 20 years later, there's so much, there's a plethora of stories written today because we have more Black screenwriters, we have more female writers, we have more Black directors, both male and female, we have more Black producers, both male and female, working within the industry that are singularly focused on creating these opportunities for people of color and for Black people. So winning today, I think, I hope, would mean something more tangible in the way of work for, you know, black people when they win the highest award. It's just for me, 20 years ago, that just wasn't the case. It just wasn't the case. And I would say that was also the case with Sidney Poitier when he won. You know, the plethora of roles that he should have been afforded and he should have been able to play didn't exist for him either. Right. Because, as you say, there were not people of color behind the scenes in the positions to green light projects to create the kinds of roles exactly that would meet yeah and and even back then there were still even more roles for black men than there were for black women i remember diane carroll telling me that in the many conversation i had with her that her challenge was always to make a way out of no way and she said to me and you my dear are making a way out of no way also you know and we shared that knowing that it was very much us as Black women making a way out of nowhere. And I assume this is what has galvanized you to create your own projects and to become a director in your own right. Yes, 
out of sheer desire to be able to play a diverse, um, to play diverse characters and not be pigeonholed and not always play the same character over and over. Halle Berry recently signed a deal with Netflix to produce and star in multiple projects, starting with her directorial debut, Bruised. Absolutely. It's, it's forced me to produce. It's forced me to have to think outside the box and um, fight for roles that, you know, allow, even like fighting for a role like my character in the Flintstones. That's a cartoon. But at the same time, it was also saying that, you know, women of color and Black people should be in bedrock. We should be a part of that movie. That's a part of pop culture. That's a part of, you know, our history, our culture. We should be represented there. So even fights like that, that seemed insignificant to me, felt very significant. They felt very significant. Yeah, that is such a great example because I think Black artists are under so much pressure in terms of the decisions that you make about what projects to be a part of. And that's a huge aspect of Sidney Poitier's legacy is the decisions that he made, but balancing the decisions you make with the opportunities that you get. I mean, what you're saying is that it's much more complex than simply saying yes or no to certain projects. You really have to think about where those opportunities come from in the first place. Exactly. So our work at the Academy Museum involves a lot of careful thinking about how to present and discuss Hollywood history. We are so honored that you and your family came to visit the museum recently. And uh, I wonder if you could talk about the experience of seeing your speech, your acceptance speech as a part of our Academy Awards History Gallery. Like I was blown away to walk through it for the first time with my daughter and see how it impacted her. But for me to see my speech was moving, but it was most moving because I got to see it for the first time in its entirety with my daughter. And she was very moved by the fact that I was so moved. And I think that's why she cried because at the end she turned to me and she was crying and I was crying. She said, I just have one question. Why were you so emotional? I mean, because before my speech, she had watched other speeches. Like we watched like 10 of them before we got to mine because you have to wait until it organically plays, right? You can't push a button and just see my speech. So we had to watch 10 others and nobody reacted like that in their speeches. They were all happy and they had things to say, but like nobody, you know, bawled to the point of not being able to speak. And so she didn't really understand why I behaved that way. She was born in 2008 when Barack Obama became president. So for black people to hold high offices like that and to be integrated into society, she just couldn't understand that it had taken 74 years for someone to win that award. And that person was me, her, her mother that she just sees as regular old crackers. She's like, <laughs> first of all, somebody did it and it was you. <laughs> well, it, it gave us a great opportunity to speak about it um, and her to understand the magnitude of that moment. I mean, people fantasize about what their Oscar speeches would be. <laughs> Holding whatever, a fork and knife and speaking to an imaginary audience. But to think about what that moment means, not just in terms of the possibilities or the lack of possibilities for future work, but how those moments could be read 10 years later, 20 years later, generations later, by people who are learning about the film industry and about film history, 
for young people to connect to that history as Halle Berry's daughter did in the Academy Awards History Gallery, it gives us a sense of just how important those moments are. Everyone wants to feel a sense of recognition. It is, you know, it is a celebration of an industry that everybody is interested in. And they want to know. They want to know what so-and-so is wearing and what's going on in their lives. Every group has its celebrations of the best of. You know, guys who who work in banks, they have their best of times. <laughs> and, you know, they all get together. And people do it all the time. Well, as my first and only Oscars party wrapped up, Everyone was emotionally spent. I think we all drank a little bit too much that night. And even though we are not filmmakers, we felt a sense of pride of being part of the history being made at the Kodak Theater and that Hollywood was making up for years of overlooking Black artists. And it was a really powerful reminder that the work of folks in the film industry, the movies they make and the ways filmmakers recognize each other, has tremendous impact on the ways that millions of people look at themselves. On this season of the Academy Museum podcast, and the Oscar goes too, we'll hear about the surprises and snubs, the tensions and the glamour, the personal stories and the cultural impact of the Academy Awards. The Academy Museum podcast is written and hosted by me, Jacqueline Stewart. This episode was produced by Antonia Sarahito. The Academy Museum podcast team includes Kimberly Stevens, Victoria Alejandro, and Monica Bushman. A special shout out to our team member, Taylor Kaufman. We are happy you're back home and welcome baby July. The show is a production of the Academy Museum of Motion Pictures in collaboration with Elias Studios. Mixing by E. Scott Kelly. Antonia Sarahito and Leo G. are the executive producers for Elias Studios. Our Academy Museum website, academymuseum.org, is designed by Fantasy and developed by Impossible Bureau. Our Elias website, elias.com slash podcast, is designed by Andy Cheatwood and the digital and marketing teams at Elias Studios. The Academy Museum marketing team created our branding. Thanks to the team at the Academy Museum, including Sean Anderson, Peter Castro, Stephanie Sykes, and Matt Youngner. And to our Academy colleagues, Randy Haberkamp and Claire Lockhart. Thanks also to the team at Elias Studios, including Sabir Brara, Kristen Hayford, Kristen Muller, Andy Orozco, Michael Cosentino, and Leo G. Academy Museum digital engagement platforms, including this podcast, are sponsored by Bloomberg Philanthropies. Support for this podcast is made possible by Gordon and Donna Crawford, who believe that quality journalism makes Los Angeles a better place to live. This program is made possible in part by the Corporation for Public Broadcasting, a private corporation funded by the American people.